it's very clear from looking at these reports that they thought it was a possibility that he was targeted because he was gay. I'm Nat Cardona, the host of late edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a Lee Enterprises podcast. You'll hear true crime stories as reported and told by journalists from regional newspapers across the U.S. For this set of episodes, we're looking at a multi-part series from the Buffalo News Watchdog team about a decades-old murder of a Catholic priest that remains unsolved. These stories will reveal shocking secrets and never-before-released details from the investigation. And on this week's episode, you're going to hear some of those secrets for the first time ever, found during Dan Herbeck and Lou Michelle's investigation into Monsignor O'Connor's murder. You won't want to miss a second of it. Let's get to it. Something that was brought up last week, and it's again mentioned here, is that bound murder book, the dossier. What does that even mean? I I guess I just, is it a copy of the reports in more of a succinct fashion or what? I just don't get it. What is it? It's literally in a in a book form, not like this, but where you open it up and you can thumb through the pages in, in a chronological order. And it, it tries to further define the crime. All the years I've been a reporter, more than 45 years, I've never seen the police label a police report as a dossier before. And Lou, I don't think you have either. No, that was a first. It's very unusual. It makes me think that somebody back there really thought this was important and really thought this should be recorded for time. And yet, unfortunately, somebody else somewhere along the line, either mistakenly or on purpose, did not keep dozens of important reports that were compiled during this time. Careless at best, at the worst, uh negligence even possible that somebody sabotaged the file somebody you know we don't have an answer we have to speculate because the buffalo police won't give us an answer as to why dozens of reports are missing and as i've said earlier i do not think the current leadership or the past recent leadership of the buffalo police would have purposely withdrawn reports from that that dossier, but somebody did. In the files that you guys got a hold of there, uh, there's a mention of police pictures. Can you go into any further detail about those? Were you actually seeing crime scene photos? I don't know what their their protocol was back then. There are some crime scene photos in the uh, dossier. Uh, police officers at the scene. I believe there's even pictures of them pulling the body up out of the water. Nothing extremely helpful to us in our inquiry. There there were pictures of the Monsignor floating in the water, right, Dan? Yes, there were. Yeah, and there's a picture of a small police rowboat in the water, and uh, it had, I believe, a rod on it, a long rod that you would use to mm-hmm. retrieve a body. Photographs of, you know, broad-viewed photographs of the creek and the steep bank that led down to it where those three boys were hiking along when they discovered the body that they thought was a mannequin at first. The biggest thing I have for you from this article, I guess maybe one of a couple things, whoever wants to tackle this, this is the first dun, dun, dun when the doctor is brought up and his quotes about maybe something going on with 
priests saying, oh, who cares if we find out what happened to him or not? Do you guys want to go into that? I is that was that a, a known thing before you guys started digging into this? This this quote, this tip from some prominent doctor? Well, one thing that really jumped out at Lou and I from this file, because it was very unusual to find this in a police report, is that a detective had talked to a well-known doctor in the city of Buffalo, and this doctor told the detective that two priests told him that it might be better off if the truth about this murder never did come out. And I found that very striking and kind of prophetic because the truth never has come out. The doctor said that he didn't even want, he's, he requested that his name not even be included in the police reports. However, the detectives said that they knew who the doctor was and they would uh, tell their supervisors if asked about that. But yeah, that is a very upsetting element. This doctor knew something from talking to priests who were in the know. And, you know, how do you walk away from that? And did the police themselves walk away from it? It's kind of just a hell of an Easter egg to have planted in there. When I read that, I was like, wait, what? This guy said something? And, you know, no more, no further things on that. I I found it very interesting that uh, a detective even thought to put that in a report and put it in the official file. Somebody had the wherewithal that it mattered enough, right? Yes. Before uh, I kind of let you guys have at it in your parting shots on Article 5, you guys go into all this research and catch up on all of this snail mail type information gathering that was kind of just the norm at the time. You know, we had all these people from the department, all hands on deck, casting a wide net, trying to figure all this out. And then bam, within two months after the murder, it's done. Was there a physical clue when you're looking at these reports? Is, is like the final report just kind of the end? There's nothing in the reports that say we are going to stop the investigation right. at this time. Okay. There's nothing in the reports that say we're an, at an absolute dead end and we can't pursue this any further. If you look at these reports, you can see that for a few weeks after this murder, there were several reports a day written by different detectives and interviewing all kinds of people from all walks of life. Then very soon after they interviewed a priest as a possible suspect, within a day or two after that, the reports just stop. Now, we don't know if there were other reports that are missing that we were not given, that it would explain why they stopped their investigation. You can only surmise that something happened right around the time that they interviewed that priest as a potential suspect that caused them to stop investigating and stop compiling reports on this case. That's what preceded the conclusion of this investigation and the stoppage. Okay. Everyone was surprised at how it just came to an abrupt halt. Like, what's going on here? Quite odd. Yes. And there is nothing in the dossier that explains why a priest named John Lewandowski became a suspect. There is absolutely no explanation for that. All of a sudden, there's reports about him, about where he hangs out, about his uh, behavior with youngsters. 
but nothing, there's no report in there that explains why he became a suspect. And hence why we're all here today talking about it. So on to Article 6. Uh, this is the Leo J. Donovan article. Uh, really catches us up on how he's on all accounts a colorful guy working his ass off, to put it plainly, for this case. The thing that stood out to me was he and the department had a pretty great success rate. I used to work at... L- police headquarters and Lou did also. And we both knew Leo J. Donovan. He was the head of the Buffalo Homicide Squad longer than anyone else in the history of the Buffalo Police Department. And when I was a young reporter, he took me aside one day and he said, Dan, I'm very proud of the fact that we solve 90% of our cases in this office. That's nine out of 10 cases. And The detectives that worked with him said that he hated to conclude an investigation without making an arrest, without solving a murder. And that's what happened in this case. And I wish we could have interviewed Leo Donovan for this series, but uh, he's been deceased for more than 20 years. He had followed the lead about Robert Armbruster, right? I I don't think Leo was directly involved in that one. I mean, he was certainly aware of it, but uh, Armbruster is the first person to emerge. Robert Armbruster, who worked for the Monsignor as a young journalist, was the first to emerge as a suspect. And uh, they they brought him in for questioning. And uh, he told the uh, detectives that he had uh, romantic feelings for his boss, Monsignor O'Connor, who had taken him under his wing. Robert had come up from from New Jersey, and uh, Monsignor O'Connor had gone so far as to find him a room at a boarding house out in Amherst. Monsignor would invite Armbruster out to dinner with other priests. Sometimes the Monsignor would invite Robert Armbruster up to his third floor suite of rooms at the St. Joseph Mother House where he resided and had a home office. And they'd have editorial meetings at the at the priest's private residence there. So they were close. They actually went on a trip to another priest's cabin in uh, the uh, countryside of Western New York. And so Armbruster is you know, spilling out how he had these romantic feelings for the priest. And then he, it it had to be shocking to the detectives when he also says there were times when I wanted to put an ax in his head. And that's why they fingerprinted him. They sent his fingerprints to the FBI. They compared the prints to prints that were found in the Monsignor's Chevy Impala. None of them came back as a match, but that really was stunning. Because everybody that we interviewed who worked with Armbruster had said that he was a very gentle person. I would say that a sure way to become a suspect in a homicide investigation is to tell people that you would have wanted to put an axe into the victim's head. I don't see how police could not follow up on a statement like that. He did make some inconsistent uh, statements to the police about how he found out that his boss had been killed, and they felt that he was not being truthful. And they questioned him at great length before finally releasing him and not arresting him. 
They had uh, questioned him for a number of hours at uh, Buffalo Police Headquarters in the Homicide Bureau. And afterwards, he had told one of his co-workers at the Magnificat, where the Monsignor was the editor-in-chief, that he was outraged that they were portraying him as a suspect in, in the Monsignor's death. And he said, I'm leaving this town. I can't work here anymore. And he eventually did leave over the next few days, and he returned to New Jersey. The thing is, he never was really cleared as a suspect. He wasn't arrested or charged, but it, they, they sent his fingerprints to the FBI. He was in the Army National Guard, uh, and he had a locker at the Maston Armory, which is just off of downtown Buffalo, uh, you know, just a couple miles away. And the police went there and they searched his locker after they had interviewed him and they were waiting for him to come back to town to question him more. And that never happened. But at the same time, their attention is being turned to other potential suspects. And one of them was Father Lewandowski, John Lewandowski. And while we don't know why Lewandowski became a suspect, he was at a church, Assumption Church, which is about 200 yards away from where the Monsignor's body was found floating in Skajakwita Creek. And uh, he had been assigned there up until six months prior to the murder, and he was a troubled priest. So can we surmise that hey, there was this troubled priest who had a violent M.O. with young boys. Uh, did something happen there? We don't know what caused the blip on the radar screen of detectives, but that is an intriguing element. Would it be fair to say that, you know, reeling back a little bit as far as arm bruster goes, that he probably wasn't the guy, most likely? But I don't think we can rule out anybody at this point, because the Buffalo police, with the abrupt closing of their investigation, they never said that Robert Armbruster is no longer a suspect. Based on the hundreds of hours that Lou and I have investigated this case, and especially based on the fact that when on the night that the Monsignor disappeared, that the nuns in the convent thought they may have heard two other men in, a, in the room with them, and that they, uh, it, it appears that he may have been taken out of the building down the fire escape. It just doesn't add up that little Robert Armbruster would be the guy to have done that. I also agree with Lou, though. Nobody that we know of was officially ruled out as a suspect, including Armbruster. One of the nuns heard the loud voices of two men. Was that two men who were in O'Connor's room with him, or was it O'Connor and another man? We don't know for sure, but there were loud voices and that third floor fire escape door, which is supposed to be locked. And there was a nun who was assigned every single night. One of her jobs was to make sure that that fire escape door was locked before she went to bed at night. She said she was absolutely certain that she locked it that night as she did every night. And yet the next morning it was found to be unlocked. Huh. That is a head scratcher. Definitely seems significant. The thing that I don't want to forget to ask you guys here is, so it's talking about suspects between, for now, 
arm wrestler and you guys are alluding to uh lewandowski correct uh these names to suspects and these guys being on police's radar just to clarify this stuff wasn't known until you guys started digging in to the files right absolutely okay when i first wrote about this in 2018 and as far as i know the buffalo media had not written about it in more than 50 years um there was no mention of any priest being a suspect in the case there was no mention of lewandowski um no details about armbruster like lou found in the second batch of reports that we got um we were we were told at the time by retired detectives and other people that a priest was a suspect, but that only came through interviews. It was nowhere to be seen in the batch of police reports that were given to me in 2018, and it was never made public, that's for sure. So this is flowing beautifully into Article 8 and Article 9, the two articles of this batch that I want to focus most on. In this next one, the, the tips article, Article 8, I'm going to kind of leave it open-ended to you guys because the whole time I'm like, what are the chances that this tip rolled in and this tip rolled in? And it, and it doesn't seem maybe a lot of stuff to be connected, but a lot of weird things were happening that night uh, that led up to him being found. So just just kind of have at it. In this, the early days of, the, of this exhaustive investigation, the, the homicide detectives and other detectives from around the city were all pulled in, and they, there was no tip that they let go unchecked. In the early morning hours of March 13th, where the Monsignor's car would be found the following night, there were a bunch of college-age kids. One of them was banging on a stop sign and uh, causing a ruckus in this upscale neighborhood. And so the police investigated that and found out that it was a UB, a University of Buffalo student. And he explained to them, yeah, I was banging on the stop sign because I had a fight with my girlfriend at a nearby party. And I figured it was better to take my aggression out that way. But what made it so interesting was the fact that across the street a day later an evening later the monsignor's car would be found and they actually interviewed a uh, private security fellow who patrolled this rich area of the city and he had seen these young adults causing this ruckus and but he also told the police that there was no 1966 impala parked on this road uh, that night. But then the next night on the 14th, and he sees the car parked there then. So the car was parked there hours after the body was found. So it took a while for the car to get there. So where was the car? You have to keep in mind that when this happened, it was by far the biggest news story in Buffalo and Western New York. It was a you know, the community was in an uproar that a very prominent, well-liked priest had been murdered. So police were asking anyone who saw anything that even had the slightest possibility of being involved somehow, call them so they could check it out. And uh, the early days of the investigation, they received tips from 
people like mental patients who said that they may have some knowledge of who killed the Monsignor. There were tips coming in that he somehow knew people in a motorcycle gang. There were tips that uh, about different bars that he hung out in, frequented. So the, the police at first were checking out everything. Right. They, they also started uh, hauling in individuals who were, this is from the police reports, who were known to prey on gay individuals. They were fingerprinting them, checking their past fingerprints, comparing those fingerprints to fingerprints that were found in the interior of the blood-spattered vehicle. Great time right here to further flesh out the question of the Monsignor and his sexuality. There wasn't anything so explicit to hard and fast confirm that, yes, Monsignor O'Connor was gay. Did the reports just dance around this the whole time? I mean, this whole article jumps into it. So have at it, guys. I don't recall any report specifically stating that Monsignor was gay. But what we do know is that the police spent a lot of time compiling a list of uh, criminals in the Buffalo area who were known for waiting outside of gay bars and attacking and robbing gay men. We know that. We also know that uh, there was some um, there was some insinuation in the reports that that uh, he may have spent time at a gay bar. There was also a very strange notation in one of the reports where uh, Detective Donovan, Chief Donovan, asked another priest if he was aware of Monsignor O'Connor's problem. He didn't explain what the problem was, but if you think back to those times, um, the attitude toward gay behavior was much different than it is today. It was very considered very unacceptable by many people. So it's very clear from looking at these reports that they thought it was a possibility that he was targeted because he was gay. You had one patrolman coming forward to the homicide detectives and giving a list to them of uh, nightclubs where um, gay individuals were known to congregate. And uh, in addition to that, thanks to Dan's reporting, one of the woman he interviewed at St. Joseph Motherhouse, who was training to become a nun who later left the uh, convent, had said that there she believed that O'Connor was gay, and she worried that his sexual orientation uh, may have led to his murder. And uh, however, his closest relatives, his closest living relative, insisted her uncle, Uncle Fran, as she called him, was not gay. There are people who feel that the crime was never solved because they didn't want to, you know, because it would have been an embarrassment at that time for the Buffalo Catholic Diocese. Also keeping in mind that, that as we've said before, there's at least a couple of dozen reports that are missing from the file that may have shed a lot more light on the issues Lou and I are talking about today. And one of the uh, police officials told me when I mentioned to him that, you know, there were missing files, that it wouldn't surprise him 
that back in that time period, somebody would shield the diocese. But we have no hard evidence of that. The individual who told me that knows how the department worked back then. Not the department, but certain individuals in the department. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a, a world far removed from now. So that, that would make sense when you're working on almost 60 years ago. One of the women who uh, was studying to be a nun back then who got to know the Monsignor quite well and who liked him and respected him very much. She had a family friend who ran a gay bar and and she was told that the Monsignor used to hang out there. And that was Mary Joan Huss. After only a mere few weeks of investigation, they find that there's there's nothing there. That always bothered me. I just always felt that it was <laughs> swept under the rug by the church. I just always felt it was either because of his Monsignor's gayness, they didn't want that to come out, or because it was actually done by a priest and they said that they would punish their own, told the police they would punish their own, and at the time, the police would be willing to do that in the city of Buffalo. There's just a very puzzling element to this. When the Monsignor was found floating in the water on his winter coat, there were burdocks found. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, you know, mm-hmm. those sticky little bo- balls, burdocks. Burrs, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, burrs. Over by the creek where he was found, they, they, they had a team of detectives searching to look for any weeds that had burrs on them over there, and there were none. However, about a mile away, there was a place, the Rumsey Woods, it was called. It was a part of Delaware Park. And I went over there. And it is a known place where gay men would meet up sometimes. And all kinds of burrs there, burdocks. And they ne- the police were never able to come up with an explanation for that. But back in the 60s, the Rumsey Woods was a place where uh, gay men would meet up. It was private. It was on a corner of the park. A very isolated area. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that's a mystery to Lou and I is that on the night that the Monsignor went out and ended up being killed that night, he went out uh, not dressed as a priest, but wearing, you know, what I would say civilian clothes, including a red plaid hunting jacket a very heavy red plaid woolen jacket. And that's what he was wearing when his body was found. Now, that was unusual because people that we interviewed said he he almost always went out in the garb of a priest. They always saw him wearing his priestly clothes. That night, for reasons that we don't understand, he was not dressed as a priest. So all these little things, they start adding up and it really does. You go, oh man. And especially now that Lou just pointed out what he pointed out too, you pointing out the outfit. It's like, okay, yeah. okay. It's start- everything's starting to all make a little bit more sense. And the things that will soon be revealed. You're going to find out more about the investigation, how it was conducted. A very, very unusual police investigation that included Leo Donovan driving 70 miles away to interview a priest at a so-called retreat house. And you're also going to find out about 
priests who were accused of wrongdoing, and at least some of those priests were kept in, in the lap of luxury in a beautiful mansion that I would not characterize as a place for punishment. Yeah, and, and Leo Donovan described it as a penal institution for wayward priests, and it was a mansion that was built by a, a, a wealthy Pittsburgh industrialist. <laughs> okay. Just gets worse, you know? It's questionable. That's it for now. Thanks to Dan and Lou from Buffalo News. You'll hear more from them next week on this Who Killed the Monsignor series. Make sure you subscribe to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. See you later.